The Bob Murphy Show, episode 246. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Bob Murphy Show. I apologize for the long hiatus. What happened is my wife and two-year-old and I all went to Belize. And then when we got back, it was Mises U time. And so we were on a long journey. And I thought ahead to the logistics of the situation. I realized I could not bring my podcasting equipment with me on the plane to Belize. And I also didn't want to leave it in the car that we were going to leave at the airport because it would fry. It was, we were flying in and out of Orlando. And so... What happened is history. In future episodes, I am sure I will tell you more about Belize. And also there was a passport hijinks involved. uh, Getting the rush passport for our son. Had to drive out to Buffalo. It's a crazy system. I got like 26 centers in the whole country. And uh, anyway, I don't want to get bogged down on that. But it is interesting just because I'm going to start with a quote from Tim Poole or an excerpt from his show on immigration restrictions that the government imposes. And it's ironic because I guess technically it was the Belize government's restriction that you can't go in there, even a two-year-old without a passport. And that's what we had to deal with. But in any event, I'm back now. I will try to increase the frequency of episodes to somewhat compensate for the fact that July was so sparse. All right. So as I say, in this episode, just to give you a broad outline going to start out with a response to something Tim Poole said recently on his show. And and this isn't, I hope with you folks, I don't need to say this, but just in case some of Tim's fans hear this and they don't know me as well, the point of this is not as, hey, well, look at Tim Poole's an idiot. It's a good teachable moment. I think he said something that was wrong in terms of the economics on his show. And it's interesting just to walk through that. And then I want to talk about whether we're in a recession or not, that sort of thing and specifically with the inventory adjustments, just so you at least understand what people are talking about. Okay, so here, without further ado, is the clip from a recent Tim Pool episode. But I mean, like, even thinking about this is kind of funny. You know, we don't have borders between states in the way that countries do. And so what happens when someone from uh, Michigan looking for work goes to New York? People keep flooding to the cities because cities have jobs and their their areas don't. That hurts everyone involved. So if you had actually borders which were more difficult to cross over, when Michigan's economy started breaking because the auto industry was leaving, you wouldn't have the mass exodus, which means the economy may have gotten hurt but could have recovered much more quickly with more people requiring services and working for each other. Instead, families left in insane numbers, and then the economy just buckles and collapses because there's no one left to support the state. Okay, so there you have it. So I didn't include in the clip itself, but the context was apparently some journalist went to a Mexican 
or a restaurant in, I don't want to say a Mexican restaurant because you're going to think it's in the U.S. and they serve tacos, a restaurant in the country of Mexico, I guess probably near the border where the locals were saying, looking around the restaurant and saying, geez, we're the only people with brown skin who speak Spanish in here. It's a bunch of gringos who are white skinned and all speaking English. They can't even learn the language. They're coming over to our country and taking over. Right. So the Tim and his guests were sort of guffawing at the irony of that situation, as you can imagine. And then that's the context in which Tim offered this observation about how, hey, this isn't just a national issue in general when workers are allowed to move across borders with no checks, just looking at their own narrow self-interest, it can lead to problems in the aggregate, right? That's my wording, but I hope you trust that that's a fair summary of what Tim just said. So I think that's wrong. Now, let me, before I dive into this, let me just stipulate the outset. You could bring up all sorts of cultural issues and things like voting and welfare and blah, blah, blah. But notice that's not what Tim was saying there. Boiling down the essence of what his point was, he was saying, if the Michigan economy slumps for some reason, and then families understandably move over to New York, where the economy's better, then that hurts everybody involved. It hurts the people in Michigan and the people in New York. Now, he didn't spell out how it hurts the people in New York. I'm assuming it's because, oh, it depresses their wages when these, you know, refugees, economic refugees come in hungry for work that you know, makes conditions worse for the local workers. I'm guessing that's what he's, he didn't spell it out in that clip, but that's presumably what he means. And then he's saying, and notice it also hurts the people in Michigan. Well, because then as the population, you know, as there's an exodus, well, now how is that economy ever going to recover if there's nobody there anymore? It was kind of a quick thing. It's not entirely clear what the mechanism is, like why people moving out makes the area poorer. But I think he said something right near the end about, you know, like, well, who's going to buy the stuff? And you could just in general just say, well, he didn't say this, but one could say just, you know, division of labor, stuff like that. Obviously, if literally everyone moves out, there's going to be no economy because there's no workers, period. And then in the less extreme, if half of the population moves out, well, then, you know, you don't have as much of a division of labor and so forth. So you might understandably think that the productivity per capita drops if too many people leave. Okay, so again, my point spelling all that out is to say, Tim was not saying, oh, yeah, economically, like in a free market or an Ancapistan, that might be good in terms of, you know, overall economic efficiency or whatever, whatever metric you want to use. But in our current regulated environment with the welfare state and, you know, what if the people from Michigan move to New York and then vote for more restrictionist policies and blah, blah, blah. He didn't say any of that, right? So don't pile on to me and say, well, Bob, you're ignoring all this because I'm just making economic. The point of this is not to even talk about borders per se. The point of this is to walk through his analysis because I think there are problems with it. And I just so you understand sort of the economics of labor movement or mobility. Okay. So I was just brainstorming and trying to think through some ways to sort of get you to see that I think Tim's analysis there is incorrect. So one obvious warm-up is to just say, take what he said about labor and apply it to other factors of production. So in general, is it bad economically if we allow for steel or coal or natural gas to be shipped from one region to another? You know, so in other words, natural resources or 
produced factors of production, you know, inventories, things like that, tools and equipment that right now are in one state. Let's just say it's the U.S. context and we're talking about states. There's a bunch of steel and oil and whatever. Yeah, let's say steel. Steel had been stockpiled in Michigan and glass and rubber and so forth, thinking they were going to use it in the car industry. And then things collapse and automobile production is way down, at least in Michigan. Maybe the Japanese come in and open some other manufacturing plants more in the south rather than up there in Michigan for various reasons. And then the question is, would it be better economically if the state of Michigan said, no, no, I'm sorry. Once local businesses have accumulated inventories of rubber and glass and steel and so forth within our borders, you're not allowed to export them. You can't just change your mind and then say, you know what? I think actually it'd be more profitable if instead of using these resources within the state of Michigan to make cars here, running the numbers, we can actually make more if we don't make as many cars here as we thought. Instead, we just ship these tires and steel and whatever down to um, the new factories in, in South Carolina. We'll sell it to some Japanese company down there. So in general, do you think that would be, that would make the people of Michigan richer? And also, Tim's logic, do you think that would also make the people in South Carolina richer if those businesses were prevented from buying factors of production that had been stockpiled in other states. And I think when you push it to that level, especially if you're talking about newly produced ones, right? Like in general, is Florida allowed to export oranges to the people in New York state? Or would you say no, that oranges being shipped from Florida up to New York makes the people in New York poor? Because think of all the, you know, the poor orange growers up there in New York state, they get flooded with cheap imports from Florida. That's not fair. That hurts them. And then now in Florida too, there's no oranges to go around. And so that makes the people of Florida poorer. You wouldn't argue like that. I'm hoping. I hope finally with the orange, maybe some of you were still with Tim's logic on the car stuff. Cause you're thinking, well, yeah, because then if they do that, then the, you know, then really the Michigan auto plants go under, they don't even have any tires, but so hopefully I got you with the oranges and you can say, no, okay, fine. Florida farmers are allowed to grow oranges. They have an excess stockpile and they can ship it. Surely you're with me there. And then I'm hoping in general, you're also with me on the other factors of production if conditions change. With a lot of this stuff too, you just throw you a curveball. Like what if there's a fire or something in a plant? Like surely and the plant's not going to be up for another six months. Surely they don't just have to sit there and leave their warehouse full of goods, especially like if they were going to spoil or something. No, they can move them somewhere else if conditions change, right? So I hope I'm just bringing up practical considerations and you're realizing this can't be a general rule. Like maybe you would rehabilitate the principle to apply to cases where you think, no, it really does apply here, Bob. Like if we're talking about workers, and the situation is there's a general economic slump because of a collapse in aggregate demand or something, then yes, what Tim said is totally true. And you're coming up, Bob, with these other scenarios that really are a different thing altogether. Fair enough, if that's the way you're read. But I'm, I'm just, again, trying to sort of draw some boundaries here, some borders, if you will, around the principle to contain it, to show it can't be as open-ended as Tim's initial logic may have led you to believe, because then it leads to absurdities. Okay. So another way when you do these types of things, 
just to warm yourself up and to figure out what exactly is the principle you're even willing to argue about. So Tim was saying, hey, this isn't just a matter of the U.S. versus Mexico. And should we allow workers from Mexico into the United States or vice versa? This is an issue between states that he's arguing. And by the way, Tim was not saying necessarily, I, Tim Poole, favor the state of Michigan and the state of New York to impose visa requirements or something to regulate the flow of U.S. citizens between their border. That, he wasn't necessarily saying that. Like, there could be other reasons, like for civil liberties and stuff. Like, Tim's obviously way, way, way against VAX passports, for sure. So he's not necessarily saying this would be a good thing to do overall. He's just saying economically, the situation that we currently have where there is an unregulated flow of labor within the United States, it does have, in his opinion, the undesirable consequence that when one state has a bad economy and workers flee, it hurts both that state in the long run and the other states to which they flee. And so that's what I'm, all right. So again, I don't want to put words in his mouth. Tim was not necessarily saying this would, you know, I want to change the policy here. He was just saying, this is what happens economically. And I'm saying, no, it doesn't. One way to see that now that I'm saying is, okay, Tim pushed it down to the state level. Well, does it hold at the city level? Within Michigan, the Detroit economy collapses. There's better job opportunities over in Lansing or down in Hillsdale. Can families in Detroit leave? And once they can, because he's, he, again, he's not saying he wants the government to have Checkpoint Charlie, but would it be bad for Detroit and Lansing if Michigan workers are allowed to relocate within the state of Michigan? And then again, you can just keep pushing it down. What, once you live on a street, are you allowed to move without hurting yourself and, or at least the neighborhood to which you move and the neighborhood from which you left? So when you push it down, it's odd. It would be odd, wouldn't it? If that were true all the way through. But if it's not true all the way through, if you're like, oh yeah, no, it's cool. Like within the state of Michigan, if in response to changing economic conditions, families relocate when it makes sense to them at an individual level. That's the thing too, by the way. I'm not defending the principle of just taking families randomly and assigning them new zip codes and having them move. The whole context here is a family moves because the people making decisions for the family think it's better for them economically if they move. So you're also allowed to look into the future there. You don't have just to respond to price signals from the next three weeks, right? Like if you get laid off from your job in Michigan and you end up deciding to move to New York, you're allowed to look ahead and say, well, don't we think the Michigan economy might recover by next year? Do we really want to uproot the whole family and take the kids out of school and move across the country? Well, not totally across the country. Move a few states over just because of this layoff. So you're, you know, you're allowed to look ahead. So the whole context here is families doing what they think is in their family's best economic interest and other interests overall, right? So you can't just turn this into a narrow thing like, oh yeah, it might be good in the short term, but it's foolish in the long run. What you're saying is you know better than those families what's good for them, All right. So again, are we going to push the principle and say, even moving within the state of Michigan is a bad idea economically for the people of Michigan? The people within Lansing, if there's different neighborhoods, they can't move. Ultimately, you could even say within companies, I suppose, right? Does it ever make sense you know, for Ford to lay off some workers to say, well, yeah, right now we can't, we have too many people on the payroll. We got to lay some of them off. How can Ford ever recover from that? If they lose all their employees, how will Ford ever become a vibrant company again? 
And then for those other companies that hire the, the laid off workers, you know, isn't that going to depress wages of their existing employees? So it hurts everybody when one company sheds workers and they flee to some other company that's posting help wanted signs, right? So you see, there's got to be something screwy here with a general principle. Okay. Another problem, and by the way, of course, Tim just fired this thing off. He didn't sit there and devote as much time as I am to it. So if he had decided to devote a half an hour to spelling it out, there would have been more nuance and whatever, obviously. But in any event, I'm still responding to what he did say, that you could argue there seems to be an asymmetry in what he's pointing out, that it seemed like what he was saying is, in the short run, the Michigan economy may be helped by the workers fleeing, but in the long run, it's going to be hurt because their base is hollowed out. But then why wouldn't you use that short-term, long-term distinction when looking at New York State? The workers fleeing to New York, if you want to argue in the short run, it hurts the other New Yorkers because now their wages get depressed by this influx of people desperate for work. Wouldn't you though say, oh, but in the long run, actually New York will be helped because now they've got a bigger population base. You know, so whatever the reasons are that Michigan is hurt by an outflow of workers in the long run, why wouldn't New York be helped in the long run by an influx of workers? Now, you can come up with specific reasons that, well, gee, you wouldn't want the entire population of planet Earth all living in Albuquerque, New Mexico, right? That would be crazy. People would be falling all over. The rents would be outrageous, blah, blah, blah. You know, roads would be congested. Nobody could even get to work. It'd be so dense. Well, right. But that's why that wouldn't happen. Right. Again, the premise here is we're saying if everybody moves to where they think the best thing is for them economically, can that somehow have unintended systemic consequences by which everybody else ends up being hurt on average by it? And I'm saying it's not clear why that would be, that the reasons you're offering for why that hurts the people of Michigan in the long run, shouldn't that help the people in New York State? Another irony there is if it does, then that's an argument for open borders. Right. In other words, if really what it it sounds like Tim's more defensible position would be is to say, yeah, actually, it can help the people in New York in the long run, but I'm more focused on Michigan. I'm saying when, you know, geez, when these families leave and you understand why they do it because the guy needs a job and blah, blah, blah. But now, where does that leave the people in Michigan and the ones who stay behind? If that's the issue, and I think it, it would be, I think that's where he has a stronger leg to stand on. Notice when it comes to the U.S. versus Mexico, it's more relevant to all oh, those poor people in Mexico. If we had open borders, their country would get hollowed out. And then we, the United States, would benefit in the long run from having more workers. When most people who are against open borders would think, no, no, the real victims here, the people who would really lose out from open borders in the U.S.'s stance would be the United States. We would get swamped with all these illegals, or they wouldn't be illegals anymore. We'd get swamped with all these foreign workers and wages would get crushed and we'd be terrible, you know. So I'm just saying it is interesting that that element of it. Okay. So just to walk through the analysis step by step, generally speaking, allowing families the option to go where they think the best prospects are, like I said, because they consider both short and long term, is certainly good for the family, right? I think Tim would be hard-pressed to argue the families relocating are making a foolish decision and that we know better than they do, right? That no, when the family member gets laid off from the big three or whatever and decides to move the family over to New York because there's better job opportunities, presumably that individual family is better off economically. 
And so then the argument has to be, well, no, but it hurts the people, you know, to where they're moving and the people from where they're leaving. So in general, like I say, to think that through, there does seem to be an asymmetry that in general, you can't do something pretty vague about, well, people leaving makes you poorer because then people showing up would make you richer. And so they would cancel out. And then also too, if that were rigidly correct, it would mean the moment we start the analysis, every region has the exact optimal population forever. And that there's never a reason, like with changing conditions, it's never the case that there should be a reshuffling. That just seems implausible. Things change. Obviously, when there's like coal towns, you know, areas where, oh, there's a coal mine and the town's booming. But then when the when it runs out of coal, and not that it literally runs out, but you know, when it becomes uneconomical to continue to use labor and other resources to continue extracting coal from that particular region, well, you wouldn't expect in the year 2500 that there's still workers in that one area because, oh, back in the day, remember when the people used to use coal for energy? And that's why we're all living here now because we're, you know, we couldn't leave. What would happen then to the grocery store? So you can see when it comes to like a natural resource like that, that as the particular ones get worn down, surely they could, and again, it doesn't even have to be the state level. Make it real specific. On this road right here, oh, you see that right there? There's a rock quarry right there. And are you saying the company is not allowed to move its operations to a different site three miles down, you know, two roads over, that they got to stay right there? Of course not. So but once you start allowing for that, that, oh, yeah, changing conditions, you know, oh, gee, a sinkhole opened up over here. Maybe the people who live right in this area want to move two neighborhoods over now. Well, gee, won't that hurt the local businesses? You know, they have they might have to shuffle around to okay, so they shuffle. It's how humans respond to changing conditions. Okay, so you can see in general the idea that the initial distribution of population among US states was optimal and any movement around makes everybody in general poor. That can't be right. Okay. And then the last thing I'll mention is some of the specific reasons that people were leaving Michigan were things like labor regulation in conjunction with unions. And again, the reason the unions, I think, had such a bad influence or impact on U.S. auto producers in Michigan is the privileges that were granted by federal and state labor laws. In a genuine free market, labor unions would serve a valuable function. And, you know, that would be a good thing. If unions existed and workers joined them, generally speaking, you would think that would promote efficiency, all things considered but not in the current regulatory environment. All right, so I've done some work on that sort of thing and like so-called right-to-work states and things like that. And the statistics are pretty... So where the argument comes down to is the states that have right-to-work laws, so-called right-to-work laws. I'll put a link, folks, if you don't know what that stuff is. I don't want to get into it right now. And again, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 246 if you want to see that stuff. But the states that have these rules that give businesses more flexibility vis-a-vis unions, they clearly perform better economically. Like it's not even close. But, and then the issue was just, well, gee, in terms of the econometrics, is it that, oh, well, states that have so-called right-to-work legislation on the books, do they also have lower taxes? And, but, you know, because they tend to be more conservative politically. So you don't know necessarily, is it that that's causing the outcome or is it's other things causing the outcome? Also, they tend to be more Southern. And so people could argue, well, they're just, it's the same thing that goes on with the minimum wage stuff. 
if you just do a standard regression, states with minimum wages have higher unemployment among teenage workers than states that don't. You know, even accounting for obvious other things, right? As I said, just a standard regression, right? So I'm saying regression there. It's taking other things into account. Whereas, by the way, the, the right to work stuff I'm saying there, that I'm always referring to a regression analysis. I was just saying, you know, say, here are the states with right to work rules on the books as of this date. Here are the states that don't. Now look at them as a group and look at them perform over time. That's what I was saying for that one. And I'm saying for the minimum wage, though, it's even next level. You can do a regression that supposedly captures some other things. And higher minimum wages tend to go hand in hand with higher unemployment rates among teenagers. So the defenders of the minimum wage stuff then have to push it back and say, well, it's because the states that tended to have the higher minimum wage had these other things going on that the regression's not picking up and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So anyway, my point is, so if it is true that things change because, oh, there's more aggressive union activity in Michigan, well, you know, that's a thing that changed. Now you could argue, well, the real solution would be to change the legislation. Okay, fine. But they didn't do that in the real world, at least not recently, or not until recently, I should say. Actually, Michigan actually has liberalized. I'll see if I can, I've done some work for the Fraser Institute on that. I'll see if I can find the study where Michigan actually did have some reforms eventually that they had demonstrable impacts that were good in terms of their economy. And you could even argue part of how they could see that is, well, gee, if we did this one reform, look at all the workers are leaving. So why don't we (laughs) change our policy mix? But my point being, you know, if they have a bad policy, yeah, workers should leave. It would be odd to think, I mean, what if some state, you know, has 98% income tax and it imposes really draconian carbon dioxide emission regulations and things like that? Surely you wouldn't argue, no, everyone just has to sit there and revert to a medieval standard of living. No, people should be allowed to leave or they should leave. And that's partly how you would mitigate the economic impact of that. That certainly the families that are fleeing are better off if they leave that draconian state. All right, so that's sort of the, uh, the argument I'd give there. Okay, now let's move on to the recession stuff. Hey, everybody, just your usual reminder, if you like what you're hearing here on the show, please consider contributing. Any amount helps, and a recurring monthly contribution is the best of all. For more details and to see the special perks you can get, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. Okay, so now let's transition and start talking about the U.S. economy and whether it's in recession. All right, so the big thing is, as I'm sure many of you have seen, is it actually true that two quarters of negative real economic growth, by which we mean real GDP, is that the definition of a recession? You stick it a gun to my head and you say, you got to answer yes or no, I'm going to say no. Many of you are saying, I always knew you were a sellout Murphy. Okay, so I put this on Twitter, or I don't know, 10 days ago when this was really getting hot. So of course, what if you don't know the context, the first quarter of 2022 had negative real GDP growth or positive shrinkage. <laughs> there was shrinkage. And so if it's the case that then there's two quarters in a row of negative growth and we believe that 
that constitutes a recession, that's bad news for the Democrats, right? Because they got the midterms coming up. They don't want a recession to have started in 2022. That's bad going into an election. So the people carrying water for the Biden administration and Democrats more generally knew there was very likely going to be a negative GDP report when the numbers for second quarter came out in late July. And so they started doing an advanced they would call it educational campaign. The critics would call it, call it disinformation campaign. I'll call it misinformation. How's that? I'll straddle the fence even more. To say, oh, no, 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 don't listen to anybody. This is crazy talk. Two negative quarters of real GDP growth has nothing to do with a recession. What are you talking about? Right-wing liars. And so the motivation for that clearly was that they wanted to not let the Republicans be able to hang a recession around Joe Biden's neck. Okay, so what I said in Twitter at the time was, if you had asked me back, like, let's say in 2005, well removed from the current political debates and before Trump came along and broke U.S. politics, I would have said, if you had said, hey, how do economists in the U.S. define a recession? I would have said, well, technically, it's whenever the NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research, says it is. Like, that's the official thing. Now, a rule of thumb, though, is generally speaking, two quarters, you know, back-to-back reductions in real GDP, the flow of final goods and services that the economy as a whole produces. If that shrinks two quarters in a row, then that's sort of the rule of thumb definition of a recession. Okay, so both camps are kind of sort of right, but also being overconfident or stating their position to the public with more certainty than it warrants. Or at least when they're acting like, no, no, we're so right. And the other side is a bunch of dirty, rotten liars. That's not right. Because both sides kind of sort of have a point on this. Because like I say, the the actual situation is a bit nuanced. So again, if you're forcing me to say yes or no, is a recession defined as back-to-back quarters of shrinking real GDP? I'm going to say no. But if you say, hey, this guy over here said a recession is back-to-back quarters of real GDP. Is he lying? I said, no, you know, let me, let me hear him talk more and see how he's presenting it. And maybe I'd say, yeah, that's basically right. And also too, because that's the situation, that's why you get these gotchas where people right now who are pro-Biden or at least anti-Republican are vociferously arguing, what are you talking about? Recession is not back-to-back quarters of negative growth. And then earlier they're on record saying, oh yeah, recession, by which we mean back-to-back quarters of real GDP declines, blah, 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 blah. And so it looks like they're total hypocrites when really it's that, like I say, it's a very nuanced thing. And unless you are an economist and immersed in this stuff, it's hard to convey to you just how nuanced it is. The analogy I came up with on Twitter, take it for what it's worth, your mileage may vary, is somebody could argue, what if all of a sudden a bunch of right-wingers came out and said, you know, these people running around saying Paul Krugman won the Nobel Prize in economics. No, he didn't. There's no such thing as a Nobel Prize in economics. Go look it up. Alfred Nobel, when he established it, didn't put it. There was no subsequent thing by which the official Nobel Prize gets awarded to economics. Actually, what it is, is the Swedish Central Bank awards the, and it's some, their title in a non-English language, bank's award for economic sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel, and it's the Royal Academy of Swedish sciences that awards that. And it's the stupid media that just calls it the Nobel in economics, but it's not. 
not really, not technically. And that would be true. Paul Krugman did not actually win the Nobel Prize in economics because there is no such thing. However, you could say, all right, but the way we talk about it in common parlance, including among economists, they say, who won the Nobel Prize this year? Or, oh, gee, do you think, do you think Kirzner could ever win? Oh, Friedrich Hayek won the Nobel Prize back in the 70s for his work on business cycle theory. So he's got that. You know, we Austrians can't be totally stupid. Hayek won the Nobel Prize, guys. We don't say he won the Swedish Central Bank's prize in economic sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel. We wouldn't be able to get anything done if we had to say that every time. Right. And then also, too, imagine, just to continue the analogy, if right-wingers just dug in their heels and said, this is the technical definition. So Paul Krum didn't win the Nobel. And then left-wingers could understand. So what are you talking about? That's the way it's used in common parlance. And then they could go and find all sorts of examples of those same right-wingers ostensibly contradicting themselves. And say, look, back in 1995, when Robert Lucas won this thing, you guys all called it, Lucas wins the Nobel for blowing up crude hydraulic Keynesianism with his rational expectation stuff. So you guys admit that this thing is the Nobel Prize because you just called it that too. So all this stuff about the Swedish Central, but you don't really believe that you know that this really is the Nobel Prize because you use that same language. You see why that would be silly? And they'd say, no, what we were saying back then was just shorthand. Really, I'm telling you guys, it's not technically the Nobel Prize. That's kind of how I feel listening to the right and left go at it over the definition of a recession. So I told you what the actual situation is. And you can see how now people on the left are saying, no, a recession is not back-to-back quarters of economic growth even if you could see them earlier speaking loosely, saying it is. It's not that they're relying now. It's that they're digging their heels in on a technicality now that they weren't so worried about before. Okay, so, and I'll put some links. There's some funny stuff with Krugman that I zinged him on on Twitter. And there, that wasn't a redundancy there. I had to have two ons in that sense to make it grammatically correct. Um. The um there was, was just me transitioning. That wasn't necessary grammatically. Where he, back when it was, it was funny. Like I really, I have a skill. I have a gift. I can very quickly, I mean, I'm sure some of you may be looking at my Twitter account like, holy cow, how does Bob just know everything Krugman ever wrote? Because what I did is I found Krugman saying here in anticipation of, or maybe it was just after the numbers came out, I don't remember. And he was saying, Two quarters of negative GDP growth is not, and not was in caps, a recession. All right, so he's adamant saying, no, it isn't. And then it was funny because during the George W. Bush years, I got a quote from him where it was, I forget the month, it was like May or something, but it was of, the year was 2008. So it's going into the election where Obama's first running. And of course, they're going to run on a bad economy, right? Let the housing boom bust and everything. And so they're going to blame that on George W. Bush and his deregulation, blah, 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 free market idiocy and refusal to help people. So Krugman at that time wanted there to be a recession that started in early 08 or that at least was going on. And so he pointed to the fact that at least the advanced numbers I haven't checked to see. I'll do that later. I'm just curious. No, I'm not going to do it right now in real time to argue whether there was a recession or not. And he said something like, the fact that real GDP growth was positive, does that mean we're not in a recession? Well, no, because look at the definition of MBER. So, <laughs> and then he was calling it the irrelevance of a word. And so it was funny that there it was like a mirror image that because 
he wanted to argue we had a recession even though real GDP was rising. And now he's on the opposite side trying to say, just because real GDP <laughs> fell two quarters in a row doesn't mean we're in a recession. You got to look at, you know, people, are people hurting or not? Anyway, it was, it was just kind of funny. And then the middle one that I had in the screenshots on my on the tweet was Krugman in his masterclass gives the actual balanced, you know, fair and balanced, we report, you decide, take, which is, he said, a common definition of a recession shared by many economists and officially adopted by some governments is back-to-back quarters of negative real GDP growth. However, other economists take a broader view and blah, blah, because that actually is the more nuanced thing to say. That So some governments around the world apparently really do use that as the official working definition, whereas in the U.S. context, no, ultimately the call is the NBER. And one way to see that is if you look at the NBER's dating of recessions, they do it by month, like the trough and the peak of a business cycle. So if you're just looking at quarterly GDP data, the most they would ever be able to tell you is, oh, in this quarter, we had the second decline in real GDP. So that's when the recession started, right? You would never be able to say the recession started in December 2007, because how could you do that with, you know, if you're just using quarterly data? Oh, but to finish that train of thought, so was, some of you may have thought, holy cow, does, did Bob just, does he have memorized everything Krugman's written, including everything he wrote on his masterclass, you know, notes, tweets from 12 years ago? And did, No, what it was is that I knew for sure if I just Googled Krugman definition recession, I was going to find him saying different things, like emphasizing different things, at least. If it's not an outright contradiction with a C, it's certainly a Krugman contradiction with a K where he emphasizes different elements of a nuanced thing, depending on how does it help him politically, or is it not about politics and he's really just teaching. So that's, it's not that I actually knew. I didn't have those things in mind. I wasn't trying to dig those up. I just Googled and then looked around and said, because I thought I would probably be able to find it. And I was able to find it like in five minutes. Okay. So, so then I think we've hit the issue of the recession. So now let me read something from the, Mysterious Von Pepe, for those of you who read my blog, know that I often refer to this elusive character that emails me stuff. He goes by Von Pepe. And he sent me something from Harvey Campbell. No, Campbell Harvey. (laughs) I always get this guy's, I can't remember if he's Harvey Campbell or Campbell Harvey. He's Campbell Harvey. Be hilarious if there were a Harvey Campbell. Probably, I mean, there must exist one. I doubt he's an economist. Anyway, Campbell Harvey is the guy who, among other things, did some work on inversion of the yield curve. And, you know, how does that, quote, predict a recession? All right, so I'll put in the link, I'll put all the yield curve stuff I've done, just if you want to read that to get up to speed. But anyway, here's what he wrote on LinkedIn about the, you know, latest GDP numbers and such. Reading beyond the headlines is important. We rarely see real GDP decreasing when personal consumption expenditures are increasing, but we are now. The last time this happened over two quarters was in 1969, then parentheses, also in 47 and 49. In 2022 second quarter, which are the latest figures as of now when I'm recording this, personal consumption expenditures, which account for 71% of GDP, registered a gain of 1.0% after increasing 1.8% and these are all real annual rates, the previous quarter. The negative GDP growth in the second quarter was entirely driven by private domestic investment, which plummeted by 13.5%. 
Business investment represents less than 20% of GDP overall, but it's volatile and influential. The drop reflects a drawdown of inventories accumulated at the end of 2021. In 2021 fourth quarter, business investment rose at a staggering rate of 36.7% as many companies hoarded supplies. Consequently, the drop in business investment was not unexpected. Essentially, we are giving back some of the 6.7% real GDP growth that occurred in 2021 fourth quarter, which was driven by inventory accumulation. Today's personal income and outlay report is consistent with consumption resilience. Nominal expenditures in June were up 1.1% and registered a small positive increase even after the punitive June inflation, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so what he's saying there dovetails with Scott Sumner for his part. I won't go dig it up and read it to you, but he actually thinks these GDP figures are going to get revised because they don't correspond with other measures that typically move hand in hand with real GDP. So other things like, so Campbell, is it Campbell Harvey? Yeah. <laughs> I keep thinking, which, which one is easy? Harvey can't. What he's talking about here, and I think this is the exact one Scott pointed at as well, saying personal consumption expenditures were up in both quarters. And so normally you wouldn't see that happen while real GDP falls two quarters in a row. And he's saying the last time that happened was in 1969. And then if you say, well, when did it happen earlier than that? You got to go back another 20 years to 49. So you can see that's a very rare thing. It's unusual. And so that's partly why Scott Sumner for his part. So Campbell Harvey's not saying this, but Scott Sumner is saying he thinks when they revise these GDP numbers, because there's three issues, like we're right now looking at the advanced ones. And then I think they have what they call the second estimate and then the third and final estimate that you know comes out later as they get more data that comes in. Or I should say they come in because data is plural. Data are plural. Or the word data is plural, right? Okay. So Sumner, for his part, thinks, guys, don't die on this hill because it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. They're going to revise these figures and real GDP is actually going to be shown to have been positive in second quarter because he doesn't, he looking at the other numbers, he doesn't see how could it be that real GDP is down back to back when these other numbers are going up. It doesn't make any sense. All right, so I'm not personally saying that. I'm just letting you know that's where some of these people are arguing and why. So let me just talk a little bit more about the stuff with inventory accumulation. The big picture, and by the way, I am going to link in the show notes page, so bobmurphyshow.com slash 246, one of my favorite all-time Mises.org articles by me is this one I did, and the title is clever too, which I did come up with. It says, inventory doesn't kill real growth, people kill real growth. And at the time, so it was during the Obama years, I think it was 2010, and we had sort of a mirror image of the current situation where the real GDP figure was high and a bunch of right-wingers were trying to argue it was a bad report and that the economy was on the ropes and the Democrats shouldn't take solace in the fact that this headline GDP figure is high because look, it was all due to an inventory bounce. That was the phrase they used. And once you took out the inventory bounce, you could see that, you know, in terms of final sales, real GDP growth was very anemic. And so that's why Obama shouldn't be taking victory laps and you Democrats should worry and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So again, it was the mere, it, it's not in all these cases, it's not that the people are necessarily lying. It's just the things they stress with utter conviction and passion <laughs> flip depending on who's in the White House a lot of times. All right. So 
at that time, I was looking at those numbers and I was like, what? And there was something screwy about the way they talk about this. And you can see this too in Campbell Harvey's thing where he says, the drop reflects a drawdown of inventories accumulated at the end of 2021. That's from his LinkedIn post that I read to you. You would think from that statement that private business inventories fell during the second quarter. But no, they went up. It's just the amount by which they went up was lower than it had been in fourth quarter. Okay, so with a lot of this stuff, you're getting into first and second derivatives with the way they break these numbers down. All right, to give you a different example, or just so you understand what I'm saying and why Campbell Harvey said that, is if you look at the BEA's official press release, they have a section called Contributions to Real GDP for the Second Quarter of 2022. Overall, real GDP decreased by 0.9%. And then they break it down into the components. So for example, exports were up. So looking at it by itself, exports actually contributed, it looks like, I'm just eyeballing the chart here, like 1.9%. So if, it had just, if everything else had stayed the same and you just had the change in exports, real GDP would have been 1.9% growth. But it was more than offset by other things. And the biggest single factor that was negative was inventory investment. And so gauged as the percentage point contribution, inventory investment reduced real GDP growth in the second quarter of 2022 by two percentage points. And so Campbell Harvey, to explain it to the layperson, is saying, oh, it was a drawdown of these huge inventory stockpiles that had been built up in the fourth quarter of the earlier calendar year. No, it was a change in the change. It's that businesses added to their inventory less than they did. So specific, I can give you numbers. Specifically, so in fourth quarter, and these are nominal numbers, by the way, the item called change in private inventories, it was in the fourth quarter, the change was 249.3 billion. And then in second quarter, 2022, the change in private inventories was only 118.3 billion, right? So that's a 53% drop. And this is without adjusting for price inflation. So when you, the real numbers, which... I couldn't find very easily. It's an even bigger drop, right? Because even just with regular, like for example, just so you understand what I'm talking about, nominal GDP was 24 trillion and change in fourth quarter 2021, whereas now it's 24 trillion 851.8 billion. So nominal GDP is up 800 some billion. These are annual rates from fourth quarter to now second quarter, but real GDP is lower because price inflation has more than outpaced the growth in nominal GDP. So from those figures I, should, I just read to you about the private inventory, you can see if nominal additions to private inventory are down something like 53%, then the real ones are down a lot, even more. Okay, But that's not a drawdown in inventory in terms of the levels. It's not that businesses bulked up on inventory and then they start selling it off. It's that the rate at which they added to their inventories slowed down. And so since when we talk about, oh, what do the GDP reports say? It's talking about growth. It's not asking, did the economy produce anything this quarter? It's asking, did we produce more this quarter than we did last quarter? And if so, then real GDP is up. Okay, so that's what I'm saying. So then when they say, what were the factors that contributed to the change? Now we're getting into second derivatives. But going back to what I was saying before, this is one of my all-time favorite Mises.org articles is because I was trying to get to the bottom of that where they were, again, in, I think it was 2010, 
complaining about, oh, it's just an inventory bounce. This high real GDP figure, don't take it at face value because just inventory bounce. Once you factor, and I was looking into it and it was the weirdest thing. And so when I understood what they were saying, I came up with a reductio ad absurdum. And technically I can show you, you know, you can imagine a scenario in which there's an economy and I give the numbers in the link. So again, bobmurphyshow.com slash 246 if you're a nerd and want to get into this stuff. You can imagine an economy where at the beginning of the quarter, they had $0 in inventory. They had no inventory. At the end of the quarter, they had $0 in inventory. So they had no inventory in existence. The inventory didn't change, right? Because it went from zero to zero over the course of the quarter. And yet I chose the other numbers such that the way they typically talk about this stuff, the BEA would have to report, we had very high GDP growth this quarter and 100% of it was attributed to the acceleration in inventory investment. Even though with the example I constructed, inventories went from zero dollars, they didn't even exist. So I argued that it was a non-existent thing that stayed the same over the quarter that didn't exist at the beginning, didn't exist at the end. And that's what they're attributing to the huge surge and how much output workers and other factors of production contributed. The flow of output went up because of a thing that started out non-existing and ended the quarter non-existing. And yet the official reports would say we had a huge surge in output that was due to an inventory acceleration, even though there were no inventories at the start or at the end of the quarter. All right. And so you can see that's kind of weird. And that's the way that these people talk about this stuff. Okay. Let me, before ending the episode, just give you the basic mechanics of it. Just so you understand they're not nuts, right? They're not just speaking in alchemy or something or witchcraft, let's say. Because alchemy is a respectable thing. Newton was into it. The deal is, like, why are we even talking about inventory? The data sources they have, it's easier to just keep track of things like how much did consumers buy in terms of finished goods? And then you can keep track. Oh, businesses, how much you know, did they spend on various things, investment items and whatnot? And so you don't want to double count. So if you're counting, for example, all of the sweaters that consumers bought this quarter, if you're going to throw that into the figure for, oh, how many sweaters were produced, it matters, well, where they produced this quarter. And so then you realize where inventories come into play. Because if businesses in a previous quarter just bulked up on their sweater inventory, and then they sold them off the next quarter, and the way you're measuring it is you're looking at consumers' final purchases of sweaters you would get the quarter wrong, right? If you're just looking at when, where they purchased. So you want, you want to adjust what's called final demand figure by the change in inventories to help get the timing right. If you never made the inventory adjustment in the long run, your GDP calculations would be correct, probably. Or at least, though, I guess technically there would be a, a slight slippage if in general business is always accumulating inventory. Your GDP figures would, have a, would always be underestimates. But you get what I'm saying, that the specific moving around wouldn't, affect it too much in the long run. But if you're trying to get specific quarter to quarter and you have the inventory figures, you can try to be more precise. And so you can say, ah, in a given quarter, if we know this is how much in terms of the flow of goods consumers bought, but then we know that at the same time businesses inventory went down, you would subtract that out. You'd say, oh, that portion of the final sales was not due to current quarter production, but that was stuff that had been produced earlier. Likewise, or on the flip side, 
if you see consumers only bought a certain amount of sweaters, but then businesses added $100 billion worth of sweaters to their inventories, well, those sweaters had to be produced. So you would add that to the GDP figure. You'd say, oh, in addition to the sweaters that consumers bought and took from businesses home with them, if businesses on top of that added, you know, their stockpile of sweaters went up by $100 billion worth, then it must be the case that new production filled that void. Because how could it be that businesses both sold this much in inventory or, you know, moved this many sweaters from their property and possession over to consumers and their inventory went up? Those two put together must be how much was newly produced in that quarter, right? So that's the reason by which we say, oh, inventory in general, a positive inventory adjustment adds to GDP while it's a negative one detracts from it. Just like with the you know exports and imports, that given the way they measure stuff, yes, technically exports, quote, adds to GDP and imports, quote, subtracts from GDP, even though it's not really causal, economically speaking. But still, given the way they measure the stuff in their data sources, that's the adjustment you would have to make, given their method. All right, so that's where the inventory adjustment is coming in. So that's not crazy, but like I say, it does lead you because really the press releases and whatever refer to second derivatives. And then when you translate that into plain English, oftentimes you end up saying things like Campbell Harvey did, oh, it's a drawdown in inventory. When no, the level of inventory did not decline. What you mean is the rate of increase declined. So inventories contributed to the fourth quarter real GDP growth, whereas they subtracted from second quarter real GDP growth. Okay, last thing I'll mention is, so having settled that, so I understand what Campbell Harvey's getting at, and I may even try to get him on the show. I don't know how available he is for discussions to flesh this stuff out. Because he, he's a, oh, I didn't read that in the screenshot I had grabbed. But he, he went on to say, and this is the point I want to emphasize, that his preferred measure of the yield curve, which is the 10-year treasury yield minus the yield on the three-month treasury, that's the one that he thinks has the most predictive power and that has not been wrong, if you correctly define it, since World War II. Either way, like it's never missed a recession and it's never falsely signaled a recession that didn't come when, those, when that yield curve inverts. It hasn't inverted yet, right? So some of the other yield curve measures, like the 10-year, two-year, I think has inverted a couple times, but the 10-year, three-month has not inverted yet. It inverted before the early, you know, the recession that we had during lockdowns and it inverted the previous summer, but it didn't invert now, you know, since then. And so if you think that is a good indicator of recession, then that's another reason. So that, that, by the way, that's why I, earlier, before we were arguing about the second quarter stuff, was telling people, no, I don't think we're going to have a recession until it, at the very least late 2022, because the yield curve, had met, you know, the one that I look at, hasn't inverted yet. And by the way, if you're not familiar with my work on this stuff, I have an Austrian business cycle explanation for why the yield curve has this ostensibly predictive power. Right? So it's not just a pure, like, well, this pattern, look at this head and shoulders chart and blah, 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 blah. Like, there's the theoretical reason, if you believe in Austrian business cycle theory, that it would make sense that an inverted yield curve, quote, signals an impending recession. Again, all that stuff will be at bobmurphyshow.com slash 246 if you want to check it out. So anyway, that was a reason that I actually, if you asked me two months ago, hey, Bob, are we in a recession yet? I didn't think we were. Again, as officially defined. To say, are we in a recession is not the same thing as saying, are workers and other individuals hurting economically? Okay. Last thing I'll say on this is it is a bit weird. So even though I've given you all that stuff to say, 
it's a bit odd because the unemployment figures are where I'm getting at. And so a lot of the progressive economists are arguing, say, look, unemployment was falling in first and second quarter. So how could we be in a recession? That doesn't make any sense. And so if what Campbell Harvey was pointing about the inventory, if you saw unemployment was really low in the fourth quarter and then it rose, you could say, oh, particularly like if it was at, if unemployment were like 1% in fourth quarter and then rose to 3% in the first and second quarters, then you could say, oh yeah, the economy was running super hot in the fourth quarter when businesses were adding to inventory. And now that they bulked up and they're slowing down and they're like, okay, we rebuilt our stockpiles. And now let's just go back to a more normal flow where we're just producing, you know, for current consumption, we're not building up our inventories too on top of that then you could see how there'd be more slack in the labor market. That would kind of make sense. So you could argue that, oh, yeah, technically real GDP is down, but you know, is that really a recession? Does it portend a bad economy in the future? Should workers be nervous there's going to be mass layoffs? No, because look at the economy, which is just really running really hot in fourth quarter, building up inventory, and now we've done that. And so now we're just back to normal. You could argue that in general, and that would make sense. But again, you, what you would see is that the unemployment rate would be really low, unsustainably low in the fourth quarter, and then it would rise to more normal levels later. But that's actually not what we saw, that we saw the unemployment rate kept falling quarter to quarter. And so that's odd. And that's why people, like I say, Scott Sumner thinks that these data are actually going to be revised. He doesn't even... So for sure, Scott says the NBER, there's no way they're going to say that a recession started at some point in a month that was in the first half of 2022. And he's saying he doesn't even think these back-to-back quarters of real GDP decline are going to hold up once they do the revisions. All right. So again, I'm not saying the second point. I don't know how they do that stuff enough. But I am saying, if I had to guess, the history books aren't, you know, the NBER, you check five years from now, are they going to say a recession started in the first half of 2022? I don't think they're going to. And it's not merely because of politics, even though, I don't know how politicized the MBER is, but I'm saying that wouldn't just prove, oh yeah, they're just carrying water for Biden. Okay, I will stop there. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I will see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.